All right, Genesis chapter 3. The entire chapter will be read. So please give your attention as God's word is read. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say to you, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was also to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. When the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, so there you have it. Paradise lost. Paradise lost as Adam and Eve fall into sin. Got a lot of extra papers up here, so bear with me as I work through them. Uh, Just a brief recap. Brief, brief (laughs) recap. Anybody want to time me? Brief recap on what we looked at last time in chapter 2. As I said, chapter 2, really we looked at verses 4 through 25. We didn't look at verses 1 through 3 because we uh, looked at those verses as part of creation week. Um, Again, remember chapter and verse divisions are not uh, inspired. Um, They were not in the text. Uh, But really, chapter 2, verses 4 through 25 retell the creation story. So if chapter 1 is sort of the God's eye view of creation, chapter 2 is sort of like the man's eye view of creation. So you've got the 30,000 foot overview of creation and now uh, really chapter 2 seems to zoom in, if you will, on day 6 where man was created and the animals were created. Uh, So we saw that man was created, uh, he was placed in the garden, And then he was given a task, and he was given a a wife, and 
He called her woman because when he saw her, he said, whoa, man, right? Uh, that's, no, that's not why he called her woman. But um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, sorry. It's a long day. What can I say? No, he called her woman because she was taken out of man. Um, in the Hebrew, the word for man and woman are similar, ish and isha. Um, and that's what you have there. Um, and that's just a bird's eye view of the chapter. Uh, there's a couple of things we brought up, and uh, I only bring this up again. I, I, wanna, I don't know if I was as clear as I could have been last time. Uh, I'm only going to bring this up again in his way of review. Um, some of the things we were trying to, or at least I was trying to bring out of this chapter, is some insights that, you know, I get from doing some of the reading that I do to prepare for this, and, and a lot of the stuff I find interesting about the Old Testament, particularly Genesis, I get from a, a theologian named Gerhardus Voss, okay? Uh, V-O-S is the last name, Voss, you may have heard that name, uh, he's a he was, he's essentially considered the pioneer of uh, Reformed biblical theology. Uh, he has a classic book that all of us in seminary had to read called Biblical Theology. Um, and he has some keen insights. Now, I understand sometimes theologians can get a little too cute with their ideas. You know, they, they see, you know, connections behind every rock and tree and bush. And, and they find interesting ways to, to say, well, this means Jesus, right? You know, and... When Rahab uh, in the book of Joshua is told to put out the scarlet thread, it's like, see the scarlet thread that's symbolic, it's red because it's the blood of Jesus. And it's like, okay, maybe. Um, you know, you don't want to try to look under, you know, try to find Jesus under every rock and behind every tree and bush. But one of the things I drew out of this chapter was that Eden was a, a garden sanctuary, a temple, if you will. And the reason I brought that up is because the idea of the temple is not so much buildings, walls, and, and such, right? Just like the church, the idea of the church is not the four walls that we have here. The church is a people, right? And the temple represents God's dwelling with his people. Um, the whole idea of the tabernacle in the temple was that God would dwell in the midst of his people in this form of this building. And then they would interact with God by, you know, through the sacrifices and through uh, prayers and so on and so forth. Uh, Jesus himself calls himself the temple when he says in John chapter 2, uh, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And, and, he, and John, the gospel writer, adds his comments as he was speaking of the temple of his body. And again, this idea of Jesus being God, uh, the, the temple is the sense that he is again God dwelling with us. Uh, the church is seen as a temple to God in, in, in Ephesians 2, and uh, 1 Peter talks about how we are a temple. Why? Because the Holy Spirit dwells not only in our midst as the church, but also individually. Our bodies are temples, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians. So the idea I was trying to make, uh, bring across is that the garden is, in a sense, a temple, just as in the new heavens and the new earth, there's no, there's no need for a temple. Why? Because God is there with his people. Right? There's no need for a brick-and-mortar temple because the whole earth is basically God dwelling with his people. Uh, and then I made the, the comment that got a little bit of pushback that uh, Adam was, in a sense then, a priest king made to work in his temple. Now, yes, it doesn't say that here, and I understand that. Uh, I only draw this comparison out because... It, it, I, to me, it, me at least, it, I think it draws out some of the themes of what um, we're seeing here in Genesis 2 and 3. Um, as I was looking through this, I pulled up some stuff here. Uh, in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God creates humanity in his own image. Uh, he gives them dominion over the earth. Uh, some would argue that this dominion implies the kingly role of Adam and Eve as they were to rule over the earth as God's representatives. And then in chapter 2, verse 15, which we looked at last time, uh, there where it says, And the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. 
those, that language there is the same language that is used of the Levitical priests as they were to uh, go into the tabernacle or into the temple and to tend it and to keep it. Now, I'm not gonna, this is not a hill I'm going to die on. Okay, I'm, I'm not saying you have to believe this. I'm just saying I think it's an interesting insight that gives some, uh, you know, maybe it's some deeper understanding as to what's going on here. Uh, like I said, I'm not going to die on this hill. Um, but Voss, in his writings, uh, in his biblical theology, talks a lot about this. This is from his book, Biblical Theology, Old and New Testament, page 43. Uh, Voss writes, In the garden man was a priest king. He was placed in the garden to till it and keep it, which is, a, as he uses it, a sacerdotal function, a priestly function. Uh, the garden was thus the sanctuary, the holy of holies of the primitive world. Then later on in page 57, he says, Adam was a true priest. He was endowed with a religious character, and it was his function to discharge the highest of all religious functions, that of representing, representing humanity before God. And then uh, in another work, he writes, The first Adam was a priest king, but he fell, and his priestly and royal office was forfeited. The second Adam, however, regained and enhanced that office so that he is now our great high priest, and king of the universe. Again, just interesting insights. Not a hill I'm going to die on. I wouldn't, you don't have to believe this. You don't have to agree with me. Um, but I just think they, I think it brings out some of the interesting aspects of what's going on in here. Another thing I brought up too is the idea of covenant. This is another idea that sometimes gets some pushback because um, when you look at you know, Genesis 2, you don't see the word covenant in there. The Hebrew word for covenant is the word berit. Uh, you don't see that until later uh, when God makes a covenant with, with Abraham. Um, but the idea of covenant is that you have an agreement between two parties in which stipulations are made and promises are made. And usually in the type of covenants we're talking about here, you have a covenant between one who is greater and one who is lesser. And in this case, God would be the greater, and Adam would be the lesser. So God promises to Adam eternal life. He holds out eternal life to him for his obedience, but promises death to him for his disobedience. So you've got all of the sort of ingredients for a covenant, even though the word covenant is not here. Um, and, and if you you know, if you hold to a, a viewpoint called covenant theology, which I do, uh, you'll see this. Oftentimes, this is called the covenant of works. Now, there are some people who don't like that language because works implies merit. And Adam, um, already, just by fact of being created by God, owes God obedience anyway. So some would say this is the covenant of creation, the covenant of life, whatever you want to call it. The point is, I think you have covenant language here in which God promises reward for obedience and punishment for disobedience. Those items are definitely clearly here where he says, if, you know, do not eat of the tree, okay, in verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat in it, for the day that you eat, in it, eat of it, you shall surely die. And then the implication there that is not stated is that if you obey and you do not eat of it, then you will surely live. So I just wanted to bring some of those thoughts out. I mean, I could say more on covenant theology, but maybe I'll say more as we get into Genesis as a whole. Um, but now let's just get into our study, because as we head into Genesis 3, right, as we left off in Genesis 2, everything's happy. <laughs> right? Uh, Adam has his wife. They are there. Uh, they are tending and keeping the garden. Um, and, and you have at the end this great promise of marriage at the end. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So together, the two, both created in God's image, both equally created in God's image. One is not greater than the other in terms of essence, uh, but they together form a one flesh union. 
which becomes very important um, when we talk about how marriage points to Christ and the church, as Paul will say in Ephesians 5. So it's happy. In fact, you find out here they were both naked and they were not ashamed. It's wonderful. It's paradise, right? Until you come into Genesis chapter 3. Now, if you remember when we looked at the introduction, one of the things I talked about is, is Genesis history? Okay, is Genesis history? Now we would say yes, okay? I'm, when I say, is Genesis history to anyone here, I don't think that's going to be controversial. But the problem is, if you say, is Genesis history, and you say yes to the larger world outside, they're going to look at you like you just, you know, like you have two heads on your shoulders or something like that. They're going to look at you as a weirdo. Because why? Well, because what happens in the very first verse of chapter 3? Well, you've got a talking snake, all right? Snakes don't normally talk, at least not in our world. I think if you went to the zoo and you saw a talking snake, you might rightly freak out and say, what's going on here? And then look to see if there's a tree with fruit on it nearby and see if the, sna- the serpent was trying to, te- to tempt you. So you would look at this and say, this is mythology. In fact, even people who would affirm the gospel of Jesus Christ would look at the first 11 chapters of Genesis and say, it's kind of mythology. All right? But... We're going to say, no, this is history. This is history. Because if you don't have a fall, what's the point of Christ coming in the first place? <laughs> You've got to have a fall. You have to have a real Adam. Some people will say, hey, Adam's you know, sort of like at the end of a long line of evolution. Well, what is that? That doesn't make any sense to me either. Adam's either the first man or he's not, okay? <laughs> You've got to treat this as history. Because if you don't treat it as history, the entire Bible falls apart, right? I mean, the people at Answers in Genesis are very, very correct when they, see, when they say that the book of Genesis as a whole, and the first 11 chapters in particular, are really at the foundation of all that we believe, which is why that's what's under constant attack, all right? You, you, might, get the, you, know, you might get some attack and pushback on substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ and such like that. But where they really focus their, their, their fire is on Genesis, right? Is on, uh, you, don't, you certainly don't believe that the, you know, everything was created in six days. You certainly don't believe in an actual Adam and Eve. You don't believe in a, in a floating boat in which Noah put all the animals and all that stuff. Surely you don't believe that. To which I would say, yes, I do, and stop calling me Shirley. Anybody see Airplane? Okay, <laughs> you know where I come, then you know where that's coming from. Leslie Nielsen, great deadpan delivery. <laughs> What's a hospital? What's a big building with sick people? Don't call me Shirley. <laughs> um, anyway, so it's history. And, and we're going to see here that what, we, what we're going to see in this chapter is the fall from grace, is the fall of mankind, is how... Sin and death enter the world because up until this point, there's no sin, there's no death, which is again why you cannot, you cannot have evolution in the sense of how it's understood in the world today and the uh, creation, they're not compatible because for evolution to, to, to be true, you have to have millions and millions and billions of years of death over death and death and death. Whereas that would be very odd at the end of creation where God says on, this, on the sixth day when he's done, or on the seventh day when it's done, it's very good. Well, what's very good? All this death? I mean, you, you basically got to where you're going through eons and eons of death. That doesn't seem very good. So we come here. There's no death. There's no sin. Everything's perfect until the serpent sneaks into the garden. So the theme for tonight basically is understanding the consequences of the fall and our hope of redemption through Jesus Christ. Because in this story, which is devastating, you've got a little bit of hope in here. There's a little ray of hope. There's a little light at the end of that tunnel. Uh, And we'll get to that when we get to it. Um, But again, uh, we're going to look at the fall here. Uh, So Genesis 3, we've got it separated into four points. Uh, So we've got the first one, the deception of the serpent in Genesis. 
verses 1 through 5, as you see there in verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And there, um, this is where English falls apart a little bit. Unless you have King James, then you're okay. Uh, if, you, if you have any other English translation, you have no designation between singular you and plural you. If you have a King James, you'll say thee or ye or you or thou. Um, so I've got a footnote there that when Satan or the serpent says to Eve, did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden, that that's plurals. In other words, shall, did God say that you all should not eat of any tree in the garden? So the Satan, or I should say the serpent, enters the scene. He's described as crafty, as more crafty than any other beast of the field. And here you have the serpent invading paradise. He is, he is coming in and invading God's uh, temple garden. And he's uh, listening. Now, I, I've been going back and forth calling him ser- uh, the serpent and Satan. Well, we know in Revelation 12 that he is referred to as uh, Satan. Uh, 12, Revelation 12, verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. Uh, I believe it's re- referenced again in Revelation 20, verse 2, And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So, the serpent is Satan, okay, in case you didn't know that. <laughs> All right, I don't, think that I'm, I don't think I'm spoiling the story there very much by saying that. So, the serpent is Satan. And notice what he does. Notice how he twists God's words, okay? <laughs> he comes in and immediately says to, to Eve... Did God actually say to you, you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, we know that's not what God said. Satan knows that's not what God said. Satan is deliberately lying. Right? Does that shock you? No, it shouldn't shock you. John, or Jesus in John's Gospel, calls uh, Satan the father of lies. He is the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. And we're going to see why he is described as a murderer. So he approaches Eve and twists God's words. Because God said, you can eat of every tree of the garden except the one in the midst of the garden. And Satan then says, did he say you can't eat of any tree? And the woman, of course, said to the serpent, verse 2, no, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she corrects him and says, no, 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 we can eat of any tree except the one in the middle. We're not allowed to eat that one. And then for some strange reason, she adds a little something to it. We can't even touch it. Now, did God say don't touch it? No. I mean, I don't know if that means you want to go up to the tree and like, ha, 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 you know, touch it all over the place. But uh, he didn't say you don't have to touch it. He just said don't eat the fruit of that tree. But she's somehow, I don't know, it's, it's unclear whether she's making that up, whether Adam told her that. It's certainly God didn't tell her that. But either way, she adds a little bit there and says, no, we can't even touch it lest you die. No, no, no. Only if you eat of the fruit, you're going to die. So now you have uh, the serpent responds, whereas before he twists God's words. Now he just flat out lies in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, again, if you go back to chapter 2, what did God say to Adam? If you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. Right? In the Hebrew, the way it's, it's, it's structured is, dying, you will die. Okay? That's, this is a Hebrew way of doing those things. Dying, you will die. And here Satan says, no, 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 no. You're, you're not going to die. In fact, he says, look, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the serpent flat out lies and deceives Eve. Now, there's some irony here, right? 
Because the serpent says to Eve, if you eat of it, you will be like God. Now, what's the irony? Weren't they already like God? Weren't they created in His image? They were already like God in that sense. They were, they were, they were certainly more like God than we are after the fall. They were, un, they were an unstained image of God at that point. Being created in His image. Another thing you see here, what the serpent is doing, notice how he is wording these things. The way the serpent is wording these things, he's making it sound as if God is holding something back from Adam and Eve. It's like, God told you that because he doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to, he doesn't want you to have this knowledge. He's, in fact, he's not as good as you think he is. He's, he's holding something back. That's the only way you can kind of explain how this temptation, in a sense, works. Because eventually, as we're going to see, the woman does agree that the, tr- the fruit of the tree looks good. But again, Satan is here getting her to think that he is holding something back. That God is, is not giving them everything that they need. And again, this is, this is ironic because God has given them every good thing. You saw that in chapter 2. The only thing is, you, you can eat of anything in this beautiful garden except that one tree. And Satan's turning around and says, you know, God's holding something back. Yeah, you, you, you know, he's, he doesn't want you to be like him. He's holding something back. So notice how Satan was able to turn God from a good and gracious God who provides all things into an evil God who is holding back. And as you're going to see here, as Satan often does and as sin often does, it promises much and delivers very, very little. In fact, it delivers nothing. So now you move on to verses 6 to 13, the sin of Adam and Eve. And I put Adam because he is ultimately responsible for this. So verse 6, now you see here uh, kind of the anatomy of sin. So Satan has planted this desire, he's, des- he's planted this temptation, this idea that God has not given them everything they need. So now when the woman looks at that fruit, she now sees, you know, that, that fruit does look good. It does look tasty, and I'm, I'm kind of hungry. It looks a little tasty. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll just pull one off here. And, and it's beautiful. Look how beautiful the fruit is. And that the tree was desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And then this startling statement, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate <laughs> Now, I don't know if like Eve is here. Let's, I'm trying to picture the scene. The serpent's here. Eve is here. And is Adam like literally right here listening to this whole thing going on? I don't know. But he was there. Adam was there. Adam was the one who was told by God, don't eat of the tree. And it was Adam's job to keep and tend the garden. Adam should have seen the serpent. And the minute he started doubting God's word, Adam, if he was doing his job, would have been... The, 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 the serpent head-crushing person. He would have been the one to crush the serpent's head and evict Satan from God's garden temple, but he failed in his task. He abdicated, if you will, his authority to Eve. And then, and then she takes the fruit and eats of it. And it's the anatomy of the sin. The temptation leads to desire and then leads to action. Think of how uh, James puts it in James chapter 1. He kind of spells this out, this, this idea of the anatomy of sin in James chapter 1, verses 13 through uh, 17. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. We'll get to that in a moment. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So you've got that that same kind of anatomy, that same life cycle here. The desire was planted in Eve's mind. That desire then gave birth to the sin. And then the sin uh, was delivered in the sense that she took the fruit and ate of it. Now, she sinned before she took the fruit and ate of it, Right? Sin is always first and foremost in the heart. So once she determined to eat the fruit, 
That was the sin. The eating of the fruit was just carrying out what she had already decided in her heart that she was going to do. And again, where was Adam all in all this? Well, he was right there. I don't know if he was like, again, literally right there or in the area. Whatever the case may be, he was there the whole time. The priest king abdicates his duties to the helper. And then notice in verse 7, where you know, earlier Satan says, look, if you will eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened. Well, he wasn't wrong in that part. <laughs> verse 7 says their eyes were opened. But they, were they, did they find out that they knew good and evil? No, they, what they realized is that their eyes were open, and then now they knew that they were both naked. Now it says, that seems kind of silly. Well, no, think about, again, sinful desires, right? The minute she ate, the minute Adam ate, the minute they disobeyed God, they became covenant breakers, right? And now uh, sin has been led into the front door, right? Sin is now into the world, and now they're... Their minds and their hearts are, are being filled with all kind of evil desires where before they were standing next to each other, both were naked and not were ashamed. Now, they know they're naked. <laughs> now they know they're naked. And you can probably guess that probably some evil desires are starting to, to come into play here. So what do they do? Well, they try to fix the problem themselves and they sew fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And this is, in a sense, kind of representative of man's attempts to cover his own sin, right? Uh, you know, think of how we try to downplay our sin, cover our sin, however you want to call it. Uh, this is their attempt to cover their sin. Now, what's silly about that? Because, you know, a loincloth, right, leaves wither and die, and you're going to have to continually make loincloths and so on and so forth. It was not a very good plan. So now they're filled with shame. They're filled with shame and moreover, now in verse 8, they hear the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what do they do now? They try to hide themselves. Sin and shame now lead us to avoid God. And that's, that's exactly what happens, right? When we sin, <laughs> you know, if you're caught in a big sin, maybe you don't go to church because you're afraid people will find out. Maybe you don't go to God in prayer because you're afraid of what he might say to you in prayer first of all, let me tell you, that, that's Satan talking, right? That's not God talking. You know, when you sin, God's not like, you, know, you better not come to me in prayer. You better, let me have some time to cool off before you come to me with that sin. No, no, he's like, he, he wants you to come to him. <laughs> he wants you to come to him and bring that to him. Satan is the one who wants you to keep, stay, keep away from God. Satan is the one who wants you to be shamed and stay away from the things that can actually bring healing to your life. But what they do is they, they run they, they hide. They hide from God. That's what shame and sin does. But then the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And that's singular. Where are you, Adam? Okay, now a lot of, a lot of people like to make hay about this. It's like, well, did God not know where Adam was? I thought he was omniscient. Well, yeah, he is omniscient. <laughs> He's like, where are you, Adam? Where, where is your heart, Adam? What have you done? He knows what he's done. Right, but it's like we're, you know, it's like, it's like as a parent, right? You come home and you see the evidence of something that you know has gone wrong, and you know one of your kids did it, right? And you go to your kids and you're like, all right, which one of you did this? And you probably already, even when you're asking it, you probably already know which one of them did it, right? Because <laughs> there's always, <laughs> there's always that one kid, that, you know, and you're like, you did this, didn't you? Oh no, I did. It's like, yeah, you sure? <laughs> uh, we had that in our family. Uh, we had. The <laughs> It's like, why do you always blame me? It's like, well, you know, yeah. <laughs> nine times out of ten, it's you. <laughs> uh, what to say? Yeah. <laughs> Where are you, Adam? The foolishness of thinking you can hide from God. Uh, Psalm 139, one of my favorite psalms. Um, basically talks about how wherever we are, God is there. Um, psalm 139 now, we often use this to, you know, to prove you know, life in the womb as well, and that's a good place to do that too. But, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. 
You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I, shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even in the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You cannot hide from God. God knows where you are. And there are foolish attempts to think that they can hide from God. So Adam answers, where are you, Adam? And he says, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And again, this is that same question that you would ask your kids when you know that they did something wrong. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Yes, they ate of the tree which he commanded them not to eat. And the man said, uh, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So now you see the the blame game, (laughs) right? So God goes to Adam first because Adam is... He is the, the responsible one. He is the one with whom God made the covenant. Adam is his creation, and he says, did you eat of the tree? And Adam should have you know, said, yes, Lord, I ate of the tree. But he says, no, no, no. He points the finger. He's like, the woman you gave me. <laughs> she, 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 she gave me the fruit, okay? She was the one who was tempted, I was just there, okay? I, you know, and, and, there, you know, and she gave me the fruit. You, you could have given me any woman, Lord. You could have taken any one of my ribs, and, and, but no, you gave me this one. You know, it's like, so it's your fault. This woman you gave me. So he turns to the woman, and what does the woman do? Well, the snake, <laughs> the serpent. You know, he tempted me, and I ate. Now, they're pointing the finger, avoiding blame, but who are they really pointing the finger at? God, right? God, you, you, you didn't do this right. <laughs> you know, that's, that serpent shouldn't have been here. And, 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 and this, you know, I could have had, you know, I, I was single and I went to sleep and I woke up, I was married. You could have given me any woman and you wanted me to, to give me. And, and, you know, it's your fault, God. That's the idea. They are blaming God. And we ultimately blame God often for our sin. That's why James, again, when I read that earlier, says, when you're tempted, don't blame God. God tempts no one, right? God tempts no one. But we like to think it's all God's fault when something bad happens or when we fall into sin. Well, God, why did you bring that temptation in my, into my view? So now we see point number three, the judgment of God in verses 14 through 19. First, you see God's judgment on the serpent. Now, I'm going to read verse 15, but I'm not going to look at it until a little later. I'm going to pull that aside and we'll look at it a little later. So the judgment comes, right? There was sin. You've got three parties here. You've got the serpent, you've got Adam, and you've got Eve. And God is going to judge all three of them. But he begins with the serpent, interestingly enough because he knows he's the adversary, he says to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat. It's interesting. If you look at verses in in the Old Testament that talk about serpents, they always talk about how they crawl in their bellies and they eat dust. right? So this is just God's judgment coming forth. Now, does this mean that the serpent before didn't crawl in his belly and eat dust? Well, probably does it mean that the serpent may have had legs? I, I don't know. Doesn't, he doesn't give a description of the serpent. All I know is that part of the judgment is that he's going to crawl on his belly and he's going to eat dust all the days of your life, which is not fun. I mean, have you eaten dust? I haven't eaten dust. It doesn't seem like it's a very fun diet to, to engage in. But then he says, this is the real part of the curse. This is more directed toward Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring or your seed and her seed 
He, that is the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head. And you, serpent, Satan, shall bruise his heel. Now we know this verse. We've looked at this verse uh, when we looked at our Advent series. We looked at the promise of Messiah. And here you've got the, the, what many call the proto-evangelion, uh, evangelion, however you want to pronounce that. The first gospel message here. Uh, and like I said, we're going to look at that in a moment. So he curses or brings judgment on the serpent. Then he turns to the woman. To the woman he said, Surely I will multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. So, you know, obviously, well, I mean, there's no children yet, but the implication, the assumption is that children would have been a breeze. You know, wouldn't that have been great, women, to <laughs> bear children and not have to worry about it? You know, not have to, you know, uh, go through that muscle memory or whatever. It's like, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it would have been easy. But here, you know, you're going to have, the, in, in other words, the very thing that is, in a sense, central to the woman's uh, being, which is to bear life and to bring life into this world, that is going to be painful. That is going to come now with great pain. Then he says, then your, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. You know, you read that like, oh, I desire, no, it's not like a nice desire. This is, this is a, a not nice desire. Um, just flip, you know, look over to uh, Genesis 4, verse 7. Um, this is Cain and Abel. And this is after uh, God accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's offering. And the Lord goes to Cain and says, why are you angry? And he says, uh, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well... He says, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. It's the same word as the woman's desire for her husband. In other words, sin is waiting, and it wants you, Cain. If you give into it, it will take you. Same thing here. What he is saying in verse 16 to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband, is you are going to want what your husband has. You are going to want his headship. But what's the husband going to do? Well, he's going to rule over you. In a sense, what you have here is the war of the sexes. Okay, uh, The woman's desire to usurp the man's authority and the man's desire to keep his authority by abusing his wife, by lording it over her, by, by becoming a domineering uh, a tyrant in the home. Uh, you're going to have, and that's going to play itself out all through history. All through history. The war of the sex is kind of described here. You, you will want what your husband has, but he's going to want to keep it, and he's going to rule over you. And now to the man, to Adam, he said, God that is, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, because you, in a sense, because you abdicated your, your authority that I gave you in this garden to tend it and to keep it, because you listened to your helper, and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Farmers, can I get an amen to that one? <laughs> Does the ground easily yield its fruit? Not if I hear how you guys describe what farming is like. <laughs> it's hard work, right? You know, wouldn't it be nice to just kind of look out there and see, hey, corn. You know, it just kind of pops up out of the ground. All you do is just go and pick it. No, no, you have to work hard now. Uh, and again, you know, you'll see this you know, in, the, in the garden. Everything was just kind of there, right? You saw mist comes up and, the, and the, you know, everything is, is watered and, and so on and so forth. And, and now you're going to have to scratch out a living. You're going to have to work hard to feed yourself. Curses the ground. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles. Weeds. So here you got the birth of weeds. <laughs> it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust. You are the dust man, Adam, and you're going to go back to dust. That's, And that there, in a sense, is also... You know, when God said in the day you eat of it, dying you will die, Adam now has a death sentence. 
right? He, he, is, he has been sentenced to death. Now, it's not immediate death. God is merciful in this sense, but he is going to die. You'll see that in chapter 5. You'll see the legacy of, of Adam as people die. Just this, this constant refrain of, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. But Adam is going to return to the ground from whence he came. So there you have the, the curse. God curses the serpent. He makes it the lowest of all beasts. Um, he creates enmity now between the woman and, and Satan. Uh, the woman is going to uh, bear children with great pain and is going to want to desire her husband, and the husband's going to rule over him, and Adam's going to have to work hard for a living, and he's going to go back to dust. So now you have, in verses 15 and then 20 through 24, the promise of redemption. So here you've got, let's go back to verse 15, because again, here you have this promise of the proto-evangelium, the proto-gospel, the first gospel. Because normally you don't talk about the seed of the woman. That's not a, that's not a way of speaking that is normal in Hebrew. You talk about the seed of a man, right? It's a man's seed, if you will. But here he's like, look, it's the seed of the woman. And the reason is because, well, you know, we, we look at this now back, right, through the lens of the cross, through the lens of Christ, and we know, how was Jesus born? Well, he was born the seed of the woman. It was, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, right? So she, he, he was Mary's son, uh, but uh, no man conceived Jesus. So he, he is the seed of the woman. And, and, and what you're going to see now, throughout, really throughout the rest of the story, is tracking the seed of the woman. Every genealogy you're going to see in the Bible from this point forward is marching its way <laughs> to the point where you get to Jesus. Which is why in Matthew's Gospel, when you get the genealogy of Jesus and it ends with Jesus, there are no more genealogies in the Bible. Why? You don't need them anymore. The seed of the woman's here. Right? Everything in the Old Testament is marching, marching, marching to the seed of the woman, which is, and then this constant war. Right? Because what is the seed of the serpent doing? He's going to be attacking. He's going to be trying to destroy uh, the, the seed of the, the woman. He's going to try to attack. And, I mean, that's why Cain killed Abel. Right? That's why uh, Joseph's brothers threw him in a pit. That's why David was hunted. That's why Abraham, you know, I mean, all these things, these are all attacks against the seed of the woman trying to, to end that line. But we know that the promises of God will hold true. This seed, this head-crushing seed will be Jesus. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to deal the serpent a death blow. And that will be on the cross where Jesus bears the weight of our sin and atones for our sins in a way that was never able to be done before through any of the sacrifices that were provided in the Old Testament. All, those, all the, the, the river and seas of blood that the priests waded in, killing animals for atonement, is completed when Jesus is on the cross. And at the moment of Satan's perceived greatest victory as he's finally got the seat of the woman where he wants him. We are right there, about to be killed. It's the moment where he is himself has his head crushed. Where, where, where Jesus on the cross defeats Satan, defeats sin, defeats death. And then you see now in verse 20, now the man calls his wife's name Eve. And in, in the Hebrew, if you want to see how good my Hebrew is, it's chaveh. Uh, You've got to get the ha sound in there. It's chaveh, Eve, life, living. It's from the same root words that mean alive or living. She is the mother of all living. It's kind of a fitting name for her, right? <laughs> I mean, everything is coming you know, from her, right? You know, the entire human race owes its origin to her, right? So they come from her. And notice how now God provides better coverings. They made loincloths out of uh, fig leaves. Here the Lord God made for Adam and Eve garments of skin and clothed them. Now, you could say, you know, he just like 
said, let there be garments of skin, and there were garments of skin, but I think there was an animal killed there. And I think there was an animal killed there to show that death or sin requires blood atonement. That there was an animal killed there. And, and the fact that Adam and Eve did not die instantaneously the moment they ate of the fruit does not mean that someone didn't die. Yeah, Byron. Yeah, would have been the first time they saw death, exactly. Someone did die when that fruit was eaten. It was whatever this animal was that gave its skin to clothe, to cover their sin, to cover their nakedness. And then the Lord God said, verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now notice this. This is in a sense protection. Right? Because there's, there's some things here. You know, the trees, there's significance to these trees. Okay? Particularly the tree of life. We know the tree of life appears here in the garden. You know, the tree of life appears at the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22, in which in the New Jerusalem is the tree of life again, right? Um, again, going back to Voss, uh, he describes, he talks about the two trees in the garden, and they, that they represent two distinct principles that are fundamental to human life. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents the principle of ethical autonomy, so really what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was saying is, do you trust God? Are you going to follow God? Or are you going to follow yourself? That's kind of what the test was. Are you, do you have enough faith to know that when God says, don't do that, it's, it's for the best? Or are you going to say, no, I know better, and I'm going to take and eat anyway? So it was a test of ethical autonomy or the ability to determine for oneself what is right and wrong. Do you believe God when He says, don't eat, that's wrong? Or are you going to say, no, I'm going to find out for myself whether that's right or wrong. I am the law. Is it God's law or am I the law? The tree of life, on the other hand, represents the, spirit, uh, the principle of spiritual life and vitality that comes from a right relationship from God. The, the tree of life was the reward. Would have been the reward had Adam obeyed um, and it symbolizes the spiritual vitality and blessedness. I mean, think about it. I mean, the whole idea of the new heavens and new earth is that the tree of life blooms, right? It's fruit, it blooms in every season. You've got new fruit each month, and, and it's to you partake, and, and, and you are enjoying eternal life with God. So what Adam here, or I should say what God does, though, is when he casts them out, because if, if Adam and Eve then had taken of the tree of life, the thinking goes is that they would have then been eternally confirmed in their state of sin. So God's like, do not let them take from the tree of life. We need to, first of all, we need to kick them out because sin cannot be in my presence. This is, if the, if the, again, if the garden is, is the temple of God, sin cannot dwell in the temple of God. Sin needs to be expelled from the temple of God. So they are cast out. But also part of this, in a sense, is for Adam's protection, lest they eat of the tree of life and be confirmed in their sinful state. So there in verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24, He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden. Again, another reason why I think this is a temple because the entrance to the temple was always on the east, facing east. He placed cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The tree of life has now been removed, if you will, uh, kept from us. Uh, something that we are trying to now attain again at some point that we will only do until Christ returns. But this cherubim guards, and again, it, which is why it's suggestive of, of a temple, because often in the temple uh, tapestries are uh, pictures and, and symbols of cherubim. You've got a cherubim on, this, on the seat of atonement too, but you've got cherubim on the curtains that guard all of the uh, uh, entrances to the Holy of Holies and such. But what you have here now is paradise lost. Paradise is lost. Adam and Eve lost paradise through their sin, through the temptation of the serpent. They've been kicked out. And now 
Really, this is, in a sense, the beginning of the drama of redemptive history. Uh, this is the reason why you have to have a redemption story, because this was lost. This paradise was lost. It was, it was held out to Adam, and he failed to attain it. So now we wait for the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, to come, who will do what Adam didn't do. Notice how Satan tempts Adam in a paradise, right? Adam and Eve, they're in paradise. They're without sin. Everything's wonderful. Where is Jesus tempted? He's tempted in a wilderness. When is Jesus tempted? After 40 days of fasting. So Jesus is at his weakest. He's physically weak, and that's when Satan tempts him. And notice again how Satan tempts Jesus. Again, has God said, right? You know, Satan only has like two or three bullets that he keeps firing. They're the same bullets. You know, did God say this? And then he twists God's words. Then he just flat out lies. But Adam, or Jesus, the second Adam, succeeds where the first Adam fails. So here you have, as we bring this to a close, Genesis 3, we see the fall of mankind into sin and the consequences that follow. We now live life outside of Eden. Uh, Yet in the midst of this tragedy, we find the first promise of redemption in the seed of the woman which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But here again, what we see is it's not just Adam and Eve's sin, because what Paul will make this connection in Romans 5, that what they did brought sin and death to the whole world. Right? I mean, Adam's failure wasn't just for him. Adam was not a private individual that only sinned for himself. He sinned, as some like to call it, a public individual. He was a, a, a head, if you will, of, a, of, a, of everyone who would come from him. Everyone then who is born into this world is born into the same sin that Adam has because when Adam sinned, he brought sin and death into the world. Where he says, because of the disobedience of one, sin and death now have come to all. Have come to all. So we are all born in the same sin that Adam had. This is called original sin, if you will. It, it's... It's the answer to the question, why is the world so screwed up, right? Why is the world in the mess that it's in? Because of sin, right? Adam, we are sinful people. I like to say we are sinful people living in a sinful world. Fallen people living in a fallen world. Even creation is groaning, as Paul will say in Romans 8. It's groaning, waiting for the redemption of the sons of God to be revealed. All of this because of one man, but... The good news is that on the flip side, because of the righteousness of one man, all will be saved, right? All who are in Christ are saved because of his righteousness. So Jesus Christ stands again in the place of Adam as a public person for all those who are in him. But then, as I said, as far as our take-home, we live lives, our lives now east of Eden. We cannot get back to Eden yet, <laughs> right? That's it, coming. It's coming for all those who are in Christ but we have never experienced paradise like our first parents did, right? I mean, I'm just, I, you know, when I was thinking about that, I'm just trying to wrap my head around that. It's like Adam and Eve have at least something that the rest of us don't have. And, they, they, and, and what that is is however long it was between Genesis 2.25 and Genesis 3.1 doesn't tell us. However long that was, they knew lives that were sin-free. That blows my mind, <laughs> I mean, just I, mean, I would I would give a lot to 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 have a little bit of time like actually sin free. I mean, where I, I didn't think about sin, I didn't you know I didn't say something stupid or do something stupid. I would just I would give almost anything for that. But we will know that day when Christ returns. We've only known a world of sin, suffering, and death. You know, I mean, that's we see that all around us. Yes, there's moments of joy, and there's moments, and, and, and really cherish those moments, uh, but we, we live in a world of, of, of sin, suffering, and death. But the promise of the gospel is that Christ has defeated sin and death and will redeem our suffering. That's why I find it, it's always so encouraging and hopeful to me when you read like passages at, at the end of he, uh, uh, Revelation where it talks about how God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. All the suffering that we go through in this life, God will redeem. He says, it's okay. I'll, I'll, I'll wipe that one from, from your eyes as well. 
So, then may we now, in light of this, understand the depth of our sin and our desperate need for a Savior. May we cling then to the hope of redemption that is found only in Christ Jesus our Lord.